0: Friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. we're ready to go to God's Word right now. Shall we all rise from our seats and let's come before the Lord in a word of prayer, please? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You and bless You once again for this wonderful Sunday morning, O God. We expect great things from You, Lord, for You are the great and mighty Deliverer. You are the omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent God and we know Father that you desire to minister to the needs of your people and right now oh God we pray that the Spirit of God will move in a very special way I pray for myself Lord you know my limitations and weaknesses and Lord I pray for myself so that as I speak Lord I will become your mouthpiece go beyond the manuscript that has been prepared today and speak to the hearts of your people. Give me a prophetic voice and let your name be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. I've entitled this morning's sermon, God Alone Rules. Now, we will be tackling Esther chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. But as an introduction, I'd like to make mention of the fact that King Xerxes, as well as his prime minister, Haman, had this illusion of control. In fact, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, felt that he could do anything, including inflicting harm upon his enemies. And so, both these people felt that they were in control. Both these people felt that they had the power to arrange circumstances and events. However, there is one thing that we find in the book of Esther, and it is this, that it is God alone who rules. It is God alone who is sovereign. It is God alone who has sovereign control over events, circumstances, and people. And that is why if there are some people who think that they can manipulate their way, that they can control situations, that's actually just an illusion. The truth of the matter is that only God has control. Now, to the tragic discovery of Haman, he discovered that he really did not have any control. And eventually, he lost everything, including his very life. Now, chapter 8 is a series of ironies. We will see that as we go from verse to verse. And what we see here is God proving that He alone rules. Now, the narrative follows four sections, which I'd like to share to you on the screen right now. Actually, everything talks about God's sovereignty. So in verses 1 to 2, we see God's sovereignty in Esther's prosperity and Mordecai's promotion. And then we also see God's sovereignty in verses 3 to 6, as seen in Esther's petition on behalf of the Jews. And then in verses 7 to 14, we see the sovereignty of God as seen in the king's action. And then finally, in verses 15 to 17, we see once again, the sovereignty of God as seen in Mordecai and the Jews' exaltation. And obviously, what I'd like to be able to do once again this morning is to be able to present to you a high view of God. Because I believe it is only when we have a high view of God that you and I will begin to devote ourselves to the Lord. We will begin to have a deeper worship and a greater intimacy with God. And I think we need to be reminded over and over again that our God is sovereign, that He is in control. A lot of times we find ourselves in great worry and in great anxiety, and we are fearful of so many things we look at the future, and we see that there is so much uncertainty, and we get to be worried a lot about what might happen next. But then again, we are safe in the loving hands of God. And this is what you and I will see in this particular chapter. So let's begin with God's sovereignty in Esther's prosperity and Mordecai's promotion in verses 1 and 2, but we'll begin with verse 1. It says, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. Now, this is the first irony here because if you recall the previous uh, sermons that we have had, remember that Haman had an evil plot against Mordecai. His plan was that Mordecai would be hanged on a gallows that is about eight stories high to make a public spectacle, to ridicule this man whom he considered as his arch enemy. And yet there was a twist, there was a turnabout in the events and what we know is that instead of Mordecai being hanged on the gallows, it was Haman who was hanged on the gallows. Now we are told here that something else happened. Again, reading verse 1, it says, "...on that day King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther." Now, we find the acquisition of all of Haman's property, and it was now given to Esther. I don't think that Esther really imagined this coming to take place. I believe that, you know, she was well content with the fact that she was the queen... She was in the palace of King Xerxes, and for her, that was enough. Yet God in His goodness and graciousness and generosity gives her even more. So she was given all the property of Haman. And think about this. Remember that Haman was filthy rich. Remember that he was willing to offer 10 million U.S. dollars just to be able to annihilate all the Jews. He was willing to spend that much money. And what does that tell us? He was extremely wealthy. And all that wealth right now goes into the hands of Queen Esther. Again, something that was really, really surprising. Now, the fact that Haman's property was confiscated meant one thing, that he was a criminal. The rule in the ancient Near East is that the properties of criminals would be sequestered by the king. This man wanted glory for himself. Haman wanted to be famous. He wanted to be popular. He wanted to be extremely wealthy. And yet, in the end, because he did not honor God and he did not honor God's covenant people, the result, of course, was his own humiliation. So from, from prime minister, he was now considered a criminal. Ironically, Haman wanted to confiscate the properties of the Jews, as we find it in chapter 3, verse 13. But what he intended to do to the Jews had actually returned to his own head. And once again, this teaches us a principle, the principle of sowing and reaping. Whatsoever a man sows, he shall also reap. If he sows good things, then he will reap good things. If he sows bad things, then he will also reap bad things. Now, as a review, go back to chapter 3 and verse 13 as we see the intent of Haman against the Jews. It says, Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder." So that was the goal. Not only to annihilate all of the Jews, he wanted to get all the spoils. He wanted to get all the wealth and the treasure of the Jews. And yet, What happened here? Instead, all that he owned was now given to Queen Esther. I'm reminded of Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22. And this is so powerful. This is a general principle. It says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Let me read it once again. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Definitely, this principle applied in the case both of Haman, the enemy, and also Queen Esther. Queen Esther received all the treasure of Haman. So this is another irony. And you will see one irony after another as we go through the entire narrative. Now, continuing on in verse 1, it says, And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. So here we find the recognition of Mordecai as the elder cousin and as a sort of stepfather to Esther. After four years, finally, Esther now reveals what Mordecai was to her, an elder cousin and a father, raising her up all throughout these years. And I like what Matthew Henry says, Now the king, King Xerxes, finds himself for his wife's sake more obliged than he thought he had been to delight in doing honor to Mordecai. So this revelation paves the way for Mordecai's future promotion in the kingdom. Again, this is so mind-blowing. God continually surprises us with His goodness. God continually surprises us with His graciousness. Well, just a little uh, story. This week, uh, the elders wanted to treat um, Michael O. And one of the things that he wanted to do was to do scuba diving. So it's a good thing that uh, one of our members happens to be a professional diver. And so uh, we treated him to that. That was the first time that he would go on scuba diving together with his daughter, Hannah. So it was like an introduction to scuba diving. And so they went into the water. And coming out of the water, you could see the big difference on their faces. Because right after uh, their swimming or scuba diving, when they rose to the surface, they took out their goggles. And I could see Hannah from a distance. This is how her face looked like. She said, wow, wow, wow. And Michael O. was saying, awesome. Hannah said uh, to us that when you look at the surface of the water, it seems like there's nothing there. But underneath, you see a different world. A world of different colors. A world of different shapes and sizes. A world of different sea creatures. And the result of that was worship. And you know what Michael O did right after? He said, this, this requires prayer. And we all closed our eyes before the Lord and Michael started to pray. I, I, I heard probably one of the most eloquent and most poetic prayers that I have ever heard. It was, it was a prayer of worship. God surprised him. God just blessed him in a special way. And friends, isn't that how God treats each and every one of us? Amen. God just blesses us and surprises us with so many things. Amen. So continuing on with the story in verse 2, it says that the king took off his signet ring which he had taken away from Haman. And guess, to whom did he give? It says he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther said, Mordecai over the house of Haman. The king took the king, the king rather took the ring of uh, Haman and he now placed that ring on the finger of Mordecai. What does that mean? It means that now, Mordecai had taken the place of Haman. He was now the prime minister of the medo Persian empire. It doesn't get any better than that. I don't think that Mordecai actually saw this coming. All he wanted was that his life would be preserved, the life of Queen Esther would be preserved, and the life of all the Jews would be preserved. He never saw this coming. That he would one day be the second in command after King Xerxes. And guess what else happens? Well, we see that it says, And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. The one who was being trampled upon by Haman was now in the same position of power as Haman. But more than that, here's another irony. He now has, Mordecai now has authority over Haman's properties given to Mordecai by Esther. Isn't this another irony that takes place? It's really an amazing thing that we find here. But I'd like you to know that all of these blessings came not because Esther and Haman were worthy and deserving. This was really a matter of grace. Because in the first place, if you've been following our sermon, remember that they were in compromise. God wanted them, in fact the entire nation, to return back to the land of promise but they were already blessed they felt comfort while they were in the middle person empire and because of that because they had received comfort comfort in that empire they refused to go back to the land of canaan which was really the perfect will of god so they were in compromise yet god remained faithful to them don't you see a little bit of our own story Isn't it true that we often fail God in so many ways? In words, in thoughts, and in our actions, we sometimes fail the Lord. Yet, in spite of all our failures, in spite of all our misgivings, God remains faithful to us. God remains faithful to His character. He remains faithful to His attributes. Now, as I say that, that does not give us an excuse to continue on in our backsliding and to continue on in our compromises. In fact, what what should happen is this. According to the book of Romans, the kindness of God should lead us to repentance. Amen? That is what needs to happen. When we experience the kindness of God, when we experience the goodness of God in our lives, that should lead us to repentance. Isn't that exactly what happened in the case of Peter? Remember, they were fishing at that time all night. And by the way, this is something you probably know about fishes. They surface in the evening. That is why fishermen do their fishing when? Not during the daytime. More often than not, they do their fishing at night. But then again, they tried to fish all night. They had no hole. They had no catch. And Jesus said to them, go again. And interestingly, they had a net full of fishes. And at that time, how did Peter respond to the Lord Jesus Christ? He said, "He said, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinner. You know, that's what the goodness of God is supposed to do in our lives. That is what the blessings of God is supposed to do in our lives. It is supposed to bring us into repentance as we see the goodness and the faithfulness of God in our lives. Now again, these blessings came as a matter of grace because they were God's chosen people. We too are undeserving And yet God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Isn't that what Ephesians chapter 1 says? Now let me ask you this question. When God chose you, when God elected you, when you surrendered your life to Christ, did He know that you would stumble and fall and fail? Did He know that? And the answer is yes. The Lord knew we would fail Him. The Lord knew we would stumble and fall, and yet it did not stop God, as Ephesians chapter 1 says, to bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Our God is a faithful God. Though we are unfaithful, God remains faithful to His people. Amen? Could you say to your neighbor, God is faithful. Now, in verses 3 to 6, we will see God's sovereignty as seen in Esther's petition on behalf of the Jews. Let's begin with verse 3. It says, Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite, and his plot, which he had devised against the Jews. Now, remember what we have been saying in the previous sermons, that a decree that has the insignia of the king could not be revoked. And so Esther was trying to do something. She was begging for the revocation of the decree to annihilate the Jews. And what she does is she enters the king's presence, and this time without any appointment, By this time, she already had the confidence that she had the affections of the king, and so she was no longer going through protocol. She was entering into the very presence of the king. This was, once again, the handiwork of God. Now, look at what Esther did. Esther earnestly implored the king to melt the heart of the king. Now, women, there's a lesson that you can actually learn here from Esther. You can learn a a thing or two from Esther. Sometimes nagging and arguing and shouting doesn't work. Amen? Are the women listening here? All right. You need to use the feminine and charming ways of Esther. You know, women have a particular strength. And sometimes you're not using that strength to good use. Isn't it true that the Bible says that the men are the head of the household? But somebody once said that the woman is the neck and she turns the head wherever she wishes. (laughs) So use that strength, use that feminine strength. And we see exactly what, what Esther was doing here. This is the way to win the husband's heart. Now, of course, I do not mean to say that you fall before your husband's feet and start weeping. I'm not suggesting that. But you see, there are other ways to be able to persuade and convince other people. So guess what happens? Look at verse 4. The king extended the golden scepter to Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. So we find the king's acceptance of Esther. How can the king refuse his beautiful wife with her gentle ways? But here's the greater truth the king cannot possibly refuse the will of God. Amen? The king cannot refuse the will of God. For after all, this was the will of God to preserve his own people. i like to borrow something from the devotionals that Edmond Chan usually sends to me. You know, Edmond Chan is such a great mentor that He sends me on a weekly basis, He sends me two or three devotionals. In fact, there was a season for about, I think two months, every single day, He was sending me His devotionals. And He was also requiring me to send my devotionals to Him. So it was a little bit of extra work for me, but it was really encouraging and inspiring. I would read these devotionals. And one of the devotionals was about Psalm 93, verses 1 and 2. And I'd like to share that to you right now. Psalm 93, 1 and 2 says, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as His belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting." Now, Edmund Chan shares the fact that there are two observations, two key observations here. Number one, we find the ancient throne of God. God is not a rookie. God is not a newbie. God is not a newcomer on the scene. Why? Because verse 2 says, Your throne is established from of old. So God is not a rookie. He is not inexperienced. In fact, He was there right from the very beginning. Our God is the Alpha and the Omega. He has no beginning and He has no end. Isn't it something that that brings confidence in our hearts that our God does not sit on a plastic stool, but rather He sits on an ancient throne. His throne is established, which means it is unmovable, that it cannot be moved at all. Our God reigns securely and eternally. Securely and eternally. There will never ever be a time that our God will be dethroned. Amen? He will always be seated on His throne. Amen? And He will always be faithful to His people. Not only do we see an ancient throne, what else do we see? We see an eternal king. The Lord reigns, as verse 1 says. Now, unlike English grammar, where the noun usually precedes the verb, in Hebrew grammar, it is the other way around. The verb comes first and then the noun. That's how it is among the Hebrews. But here in verse 1, the reversed order puts special emphasis on the Lord. So, the Hebraic emphasis is not the Lord reigns. The emphasis is not the reigning but rather who it is that reigns. Now, who is it that reigns? It is the Lord. Meaning, the Lord alone and no one else reigns as the absolute sovereign monarch. Amen? God is alone. Amen? There is nobody beside Him. He has no rivals. He alone is the sovereign monarch. Amen? So we are safe in the loving hands of our God? Why should we want to put our lives and our families in the hands of somebody else or something else? Why shouldn't we put our lives in the hands of this everlasting God, this eternal King who is established on His ancient throne? Again, that's a very important truth. Psalm 93 verse 2 gives the theological premise for this unique reign. You are from everlasting. He is the eternal king. No other eternal monarch can boast of this credential. At times we see kings and monarchs and presidents and rulers and prime ministers becoming very arrogant. Again, they have this illusion of power and this illusion of control. They think that they can do anything and everything. And sometimes they use their power to extend wickedness and and to create fear and intimidate people. And they think it will always be like that. Haman thought it would always be like that. But there is always an end for those who are proud and those who are arrogant. Because the Bible says, He will abase those who are proud and He will exalt those who are humble. And that's why, once again, promotion does not come from the East nor the West, but from the Lord God Almighty. Amen? Let's give the Lord a big hand, please. Praise the Lord. Now, as we follow through with the story in Esther 8, verses 5 and 6, this is what it says. Then she said, If it pleases the king... And if I have found favor before him and the matter seems proper to the king and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamedatha, the, Agag- the Agagite, sorry, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people?" And how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Now, here we find that Esther's plea and, and the appeal was very emotional. Knowing that she now had the ear and the heart of the king, she now ramps up her appeal. And how does she do it? Once again, women learn something here. First of all, by not being presumptuous and also appealing in a submissive way. Gentle and quiet is how you win your husband's heart. Amen? I see somebody raising the hands of the husbands. All right. So could you say this, uh, women? Gentle. That doesn't sound so gentle. (laughs) Say gentle. Gentle and quiet wins the hearts of the husbands. Let me give you a verse of Scripture. I think the men are clapping. <laughs> First Peter chapter 3, verse 1, please. It goes, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So learn from Esther. Now also notice that she appealed to the heart of the king more than his mind. I mean, Esther could have reasoned out and she said, you know what? Uh, The Jews could be a very powerful labor force for you. In fact, we have some very intelligent and very skillful people and you stand to benefit from all of that. But notice she doesn't do that, but rather she appeals to the heart of the king. And why do you think she was doing that? Because she knows that if ever the king is going to be persuaded, then his heart has to be affected. And most definitely she succeeded in doing this. Now, once again, let me point out the fact that it was still about the sovereignty of God. And we see that in verses 7 to 14, as we see God's sovereignty as seen in the king's action. Let's begin with verse 7, please. It says, So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai, (coughs) the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther and him they've hanged on the gallows because he had stretched out his hands against the Jews. Now, what was the king doing here? He was recounting the past vengeance done on Haman. Now, why do you think he was doing this? I believe he was reminding Queen Esther that he was never deaf. His ears were never deaf to the cries of Esther. The point of the recounting of this deed serves as the basis that the king intends to act on Esther's behalf once again. So, this was really very encouraging. And that's why I look at what happens in verse 8. It says, Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. So, what happened here was a counter decree to supersede Haman's decree for Israel's future protection. Now, since the decree of Haman could no longer be repealed, as I mentioned to you, the king now gives Mordecai blanket authority. It says, you can do as you see fit. And so what he does is he issues a counter decree that would enable the Jews to protect themselves. Now, only God could could cause this to happen. From the persecuted and the hunted, Mordecai now becomes the deliverer and the protector of the Jews. Mordecai obviously did not see this coming. God continually surprises us, doesn't he? Amen. God continually surprises us. It is truly a great blessing to be in the hands of God. We may be powerless, brothers and sisters, but God is our strength. Amen. We may be weak, but God is the power behind everything. Amen? So we rejoice in the goodness and in the power of our God. So here's what happens in verses 9 and following. Verse 9, first of all, it says, So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month. Take note of the date. That is the month Sivan. On the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, the princes of the provinces, which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to every province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews according to their script and their language. So, what do we see here? We see here the publishing and the proclaiming of the counter decree that Mordecai had made. Now, this is on behalf of all the Jews and it is all-inclusive and it it informs all the officials, all the government officials, and all the VIPs of the Medo-Persian kingdom. So it did not escape the notice of anyone. Now, here's another irony. I find this to be an irony. As D.A. Carson states, he says, Haman's edict of the first month was overturned in the third month by Mordecai himself. So in the first month, there was a decree for what? The annihilation of the Jews. In only about two months' time, it was now overturned by God through Mordecai. Amen? Isn't God amazing? Amen? Isn't God amazing? Hallelujah. The decree Mordecai wrote was sent out in the third month, Sivan, between June to July of 474 B.C. Since this was a little over two months after Haman's decree, the Jews had about nine months to prepare themselves Nine months to be able to secure themselves before the conflict which would happen on the 13th day of the 12th month. God gave them enough lead time, enough time to be able to prepare. God's timing is always perfect, brothers and sisters. At times we worry, do I have enough time? Do I have Do I have enough resources? Can can I do something about this? There is an impending threat upon me, upon my business, upon my job, upon my family. Is there anything that I can do? Well, yes, because God is on our side. He is with us and He is for us. Amen? God is with us and He is for us. Now, to have such an extensive authority and influence is once again a gracious act of God on behalf of His own people. It's not about our own worthiness. It's not about our being deserving. It's all about the mercy and the goodness and the graciousness and the compassion of our God. Amen. Praise be to the Lord. So in verse 10, it says, He wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And he sent letters by couriers on horses, riding on steeds, sired by the royal stud. So he had the imprimatur of the king. And so there is a speedy circulation of the decree so that every Jew would know exactly what this decree was all about. And the enemies of the Jews would know what this decree was all about. So let's read on, verses 11 to 14, as we take a look at the substance of the decree. It says, In them the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. On one day, in all the provinces of King asuerus the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month Adar, a copy of the edict to be issued as law in each and every province was published to all the peoples so that the Jews would be ready For this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers, ascent and impelled by the king's command, went out riding on royal steeds, and the decree was given out at the citadel in Susa. So you will notice the substance of the decree not only gives the Jews the right to protect themselves, to defend themselves, but even the right to kill and annihilate all their enemies. And more than that, they could actually acquire all the spoil, all the properties of their enemies. That could make them very, very wealthy overnight. Once again, this was the good hand of God. And this brought fear in the hearts of those who sought to harm the Jews. And it was really a strong deterrent from, for them to do harm among the Jews. Now, the good thing, however, when you go to chapter 9, is the Jews did not take full advantage of the decree. In fact, they did not take the spoils. And this was a good thing. I think they were really showing to the people in the Medo-Persian Empire that they were honorable people, that all they really wanted was to survive and to defend themselves. They didn't really want the wealth and the riches of other people. So this was a good thing. Once again, what do we see here? The undeserved favor given by God to the Jews. Now, in verses 15 to 17, we see God's sovereignty as seen in Mordecai and the Jews' exaltation. Let's take a look at verse 15, first of all. It says, then, Mordecai went out from the presence of the king. Now, look at how how he appears. He comes out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. You know what I was thinking when when I read this particular passage? What I was thinking is maybe they really hated Haman because it was now official that Mordecai was taking the place of Haman. And and obviously, because they were shouting, they were rejoicing, they were happy that Mordecai was now standing in the place of Haman. So Haman must have created a lot of enemies. That is why they were rejoicing. And what we find here is that Mordecai was now officially declared, installed as prime minister. Isn't that amazing? Again, another irony. He was invested with what was called as the of official honor. A dress of blue and white was held in great estimation among the Persians. So that Mordecai, whom the king delighted to honor, was in fact arrayed in the royal dress and insignia. The variety and the kind of, of insignia worn by a favorite at once makes known to the people the particular dignity to which he had been raised Mordecai wore clothes which told of his royal position royal garments a large crown a purple linen robe blue and white were the were the person royal colors he was now held he now held rather the position and status Haman had once held it doesn't get any better than that Now, think about this. Do you think Mordecai saw this coming? Let me ask you also this question. Do you think Haman saw his destruction coming? He didn't see it at all. He thought he was going to be exalted again and again and again. And yet here we find the reverse. The one who was oppressed, the one who was being humiliated, the one who was being intimidated the one who had experienced great injustice was now being elevated by the Lord, being exalted by the Lord. And this is our confidence, dear brothers and sisters, that in the goodness of God, He will see the welfare of His own people. Amen? That is why the Bible says we are not to be worried and we are not to be anxious. Do you know that worry And anxiety is actually a sin? The Bible says that we are to cast our cares upon Him for He cares for us. Amen? The Bible says that we are not to worry, but to let our petitions and prayer requests be lifted up to the Lord for He cares for us. Now, notice what happens on the part of the Jews in verse 16. For the Jews, there was a light, and gladness, and joy, and honor. What contrast! Because in the previous chapters, what did we see? We saw weeping. We saw mourning. We saw fasting. We saw fear. We saw intimidation. We saw uncertainty. Now, God reversed all of that And in place of all the grieving and mourning now, there was light, there was gladness, there was joy, and there was honor. The Jews had all of these things and they were celebrating. Previously, in chapter 3, verse 15, we are told that Susa, the city, had been bewildered or or confused. Now... Under the edict of Mordecai, the city of Susa had a joyous celebration. And obviously, the Jews were elated. The rise to power caused many Gentile nations actually to fear the Jews. Isn't that amazing? Initially, it was the Jews who were afraid. But now, they were the ones who were afraid of the Jews. So here's what happens. In each and every province, verse 17, and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. They observed a day to remember God's deliverance. You know, I'm really amazed by the fact that the timing of God for this message is so perfect. You know why? Because we're going to celebrate the memorial of the Lord's Supper. In the same manner that God delivered the people of Israel during that particular period in their history, God also has delivered us from the greatest problem of all, which is our sins. Amen. God has given us victory. God has given us deliverance. Our sins have been washed white as snow. I'm going to share to you a story, which I hope will encourage you. Uh, Two weeks ago, you probably heard the news of one town mayor, former town mayor who was gunned down. And he was gunned down by 15 men. It was really an overkill. I mean, do you really need 15 men to, to kill one person? But anyway, there's a backstory to that. There are many speculations and many thoughts in regard to what had happened. But let me just share to you a backstory. The backstory is that he was under hospital arrest. One of his relatives, happens to be a Christian, bought him a copy of my book, Enough is Enough. The week before he died, or two weeks before he was killed or gunned down, he was reading the book. And you know, one of the things that I intentionally put in that book is, is a gospel story. It's, it's the gospel story. Because I believe that it could be used as an evangelistic tool. And so before his death, this relative of his visited him. And he began to rave about the book. He really enjoyed reading the book. And you know what happened? He was, he was just talking about God all throughout that time. Something that never happened before. He was just talking about God. He was just talking about the goodness of God and all of that. And, and my thinking is, of course, we can never be completely sure. But could it be... And I'm praying that was really what happened. Could it be that before he was gunned down, he accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior? Wouldn't that be a glorious story? Now, we will not, never find out this side of heaven, but who knows, I will be surprised. Who knows, we might be surprised when we get to be in heaven. Amen? Amen? Isn't that a wonderful story if ever that is true? Amen? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that the story of the thief on the cross? Remember, both thieves were insulting Christ. It was not just one thief that was insulting and mocking Christ. Both of them were mocking Christ. Both of them were insulting Christ. Both of them were saying, if you are really the Savior, the Messiah, save yourself and save us. But you know what? God, the Holy Spirit, touched the heart of this other thief, and he had a change of heart. And he said, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And guess what Jesus said? Today, you shall be with me in paradise. Amen? What did he do? Nothing. But God is gracious. Hallelujah. And so continuing on in verse 17, it says, And many among the peoples of the land became Jews. Can you you see that? Many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. Many Gentiles became converted Jews. When our lives become testimonies of God's grace and power, many will come to Christ. Amen? Amen? When God sees, or when when people see that God is blessing us, when, when people see that the favor of God is upon us, the presence of God is upon us, they will hunger and thirst for God as well because they will see that our God is a good God. Amen. They will see that our God is a faithful God. That's what people see. You know, When our lives become exactly that, it becomes a powerful tool for the conversion of others. Instead of annihilating the Jews, guess what happened here? The Jews grew in number. The complete opposite. God just continually surprises us. You know, let me just share to you one thing, and this is, I believe, not just a personal blessing on my part, but this is a blessing for for all of us, most especially here in Cebu. You know, in my conversation with Michael O, he said, I sincerely believe that my coming here to Cebu was by divine appointment. He said, I did, I did not really have any plans of coming to Cebu, but I was with my daughter. When I was in Manila, I was in 16 hour meetings. And my my daughter was sitting down in those 16-hour meetings, and it was going to be her birthday on that particular Sunday. And so he felt that if, if it were only up to him, he would go back to Philadelphia, where he is now based. But he said he wanted to be able to treat his daughter. That is why he Googled Cebu. And he found that it is one of the best diving spots in the world. And that's why, you know, he took me on my offer for him to preach on a Sunday. But this is what he said. He visited um, Restore, which is really, I think, a halfway house for those who have been rescued from cyber pornography. And his, his heart was broken. He was so broken for for Cebu, for what is happening in our city. And he said, Eddie, his friend who spoke to us in prayer and global missions, I know that Eddie is the voice. He's the voice. But I have the platform because he happens to be the CEO of Lausanne Movement. And he said when he was talking to the people in Restore, I feel this is a historic moment because I will channel Lausanne to be able to address this situation here in Cebu, because he said, if this does not get arrested by 2050, Cebu is going to be destroyed. And Thailand will follow and Vietnam will follow. So he said, this is a historic moment. So he gathered the people from Restore. He asked my son TJ to join in the picture taking. He said, this is a historic moment, but I'm wearing shorts. But never mind, he said, we need to take a picture because we're going to do something about this. And this is what he told me pray about this. I'm thinking of making Cebu to be the host, one of the host countries in 2024 to host the Lausanne movement. Praise the Lord. Let me tell you what that means. I know some of you are not familiar with Lausanne, but it's a worldwide movement that was begun by Billy Graham and John Stott. And this is a worldwide movement. And what is going to happen is that we will be one of the sites. There will be 12 sites all over the world, 12 sites all over the world. And we will be one of those sites, God willing, the Lord willing. Guess how many people will be watching through live stream? We're talking about 3 million people watching all over the world. And they will be listening to preachings in these different, different sites. And you know what, what that is going to do? This will put the spotlight on Cebu. And this will put the spotlight as well in what God is doing in our city. And I'm so excited about this. When we built this building, we had no imagination that it would actually turn out to be something like this. The only thing we really wanted was this, because we were right at the center of Cebu, uh, right at the center of the Philippines, rather. All we wanted was to be a blessing to the islands because we wanted to be something like a training center, a, a place for conferences, a place for conventions. So that people all over the Philippines could gather and be blessed by these conference speakers. Who would have thought that God would put this place in the map and to be used for his greater glory? God is a God of surprises. Amen? He is a God of surprises. Now, the Jews had every reason to celebrate their rise to favor instead of living under the threat of death. Under Mordecai's leadership, people of other nations anticipating that it would now be advantageous to be a Jew converted to Judaism. Their rise to power caused many Gentiles to become Jewish proselytes. God's good hand was now becoming obvious to the people it was no longer, you know, they were no longer, the people of the other nations were no longer thinking this is just coincidence. No, they were now beginning to learn that God was faithful to His promise to Abraham. And what was the promise of God to Abraham? Let me turn you to Genesis 12, 1 to 3, as we come almost to a close. Genesis 12, 1 to 3 reads, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land, which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God is a covenant keeping God. Amen? And that's what we see here in this particular case. So let me close with Psalm 2 and listen up and listen really well intently because this is really, this summarizes really what we find here in the book of Esther. Psalm 2, verse 1 reads, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But He who sits in the heavens laughs, The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God alone rules. Amen. God alone rules. Hallelujah. Give the Lord a big hand. God alone rules. There's no one else, no one else but God. Let's come before the Lord right now in prayer. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes right now. I'd like to talk to those who have not yet accepted Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. We talked about the deliverance of the Jews and what a wonderful, powerful deliverance it was. But you know what? That's not the greatest deliverance you can think about. Because God can deliver you from poverty, from family problems, from business problems. But but that's not the greatest deliverance. The greatest deliverance is your deliverance from your own sins. Because you cannot save yourself. The standard of God is perfection. And it's pretty obvious, none of us are perfect. Only Jesus provides the way for our salvation. And He did that by dying on the cross to pay for all of our sins. And that's what He does. And that's what He wants. He wants you to come to Him he wants you to repent of all your sins. Now you might say, but I can't change myself. Exactly, you can't change yourself. But when you repent and surrender your life to Christ, if you will allow him, if you will allow him entrance into every aspect of your life, you will be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all you need to do is say, "Lord, I surrender my life to you. I repent." And I ask you, Lord, change me. If you come to Christ and make Him your personal Lord and Savior, you will have eternal life. Your name will be written in the book of life never to be erased. That's grace. That's mercy. That's kindness. Would you refuse that? Now, if you want to accept Christ right now on your own, actually, where you are, you can pray right now. You can just cry out to God and say, Lord, have mercy on my soul. Save me. But if you want me to guide you, I can do that. And so just for me to find out if I should be guiding some people in prayer to surrender their lives to Christ, could you please slip up your right hand to the Lord all over this place? Those who want to accept Christ as Lord and Savior of their life. Yes, sister. Yes, brother. Amen. Amen for those hands. Yes, sister, amen. Yes, sister, amen. Anyone else? Yes, sister. Yes, brother. Yes, sister. Yes, brother, amen. Yes, brother, I see that hand. Amen. Amen for those hands. You can put them down right now. I'd like you to please pray this prayer from your heart. Remember, God doesn't listen to your lips. He listens to your heart. So could you please pray this from the bottom of your heart? Lord Jesus Christ, I ask for forgiveness for all my sins. Cleanse me and wash me from all unrighteousness. Lord, I've failed you. I've sinned against you, but thank you, Lord, that you are a forgiving God. And Christ has made provision for me by dying on the cross to cleanse and wash me from all unrighteousness. So I repent, Lord, from all my sins, and I ask you to make me the kind of person that you want me to be. I receive the free gift of eternal life right now, and I thank you, Jesus, that I am now saved by grace and not by good works. Thank you, Jesus, that salvation doesn't depend on my performance, but it depends on you and on you alone. So, thank you, Jesus, for saving me today. In Jesus' mighty name, I pray, Amen Amen. and Amen. So, if you prayed that prayer today or you prayed that sometime back, well, join us in celebrating the memorial of the Lord's Supper as we celebrate God's salvation upon our lives. So may we ask the worship team and our elders and our communion servers to please come and distribute the elements, please. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, we were like the Jews under the threat of death we had no hope. We were all hell-bound sinners. And there was no way, Lord, we could get ourselves out of that rut. We were destined for damnation. But Lord, you could not simply stand from a distance. You had to do something about it. You sent Your only begotten Son to die in our place. Today we remember, Lord, that Jesus hanged on a cross more than 2,000 years ago, but we were the ones who were supposed to be on that cross. Instead, our loving Savior, decided to become our substitute. And he bore the full wrath of God. And he died. And he suffered. But he rose again to life. That we who had no hope, we who were spiritually dead, would have the hope that one day we shall also be resurrected together with you. What blessing that is. What undeserved grace that is. And we just rejoice in all of your goodness and love. Thank you, dear Jesus Christ. So Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's table, warm our hearts with your love and your manifest presence in Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake of the bread and the wine. thank you jesus thank you for today oh god what a wonderful day it is oh god to just talk about you to just worship you to just love you and be loved by you to experience and encounter your presence your sweetness to be encouraged by your word what a beautiful day it is we thank you dear lord for everything And we also thank you for the opportunity to give our tithes, our grace gifts, and our offerings. Lord, once again, use them for the glory of your holy name. And would you be so kind, Lord, to bless us and prosper us. Not because we're greedy, but we just want to be channels of blessing to exalt your name and to extend your kingdom. Whatever has been achieved today, we give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks, in Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen and amen. Shall we rise from our seats please?